welcome to the MWC podcast. Thank you for listening. 2017, here we come, right? It's a new year. We're all excited. I mean, show of hands, who, who's made some resolutions for 2017? Who, even if it's just one, one thing that you've said to yourself, you know what, I'm going to try this or be better at that. You know, they say that over 70% of Americans make resolutions, but only 8% of them actually complete them within the year. And, and, and if I asked and I, and, and I went around the room and I said, hey, what's your resolution? We're going to get a, a, just a bunch of different responses, right? Some would say, hey, you know, this year I'm going I'm to try to go to the Y a couple times a week. Uh, or, or you know what, this year I'm going to try to finish a book that I've started because I got a whole pile on my shelf that I've started and never finished. I'm going to finish a book. Or, or, or maybe you have some spiritual goals that you've set. Maybe you're like, hey, you know what, this year every single morning I'm going to start off, you know, spending some time in prayer and, and reading the scriptures with somebody. This year I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to more sermons online. This year, I plan to be at church more often. Or this year, I'm, I'm planning to, to give more generously of my time and of myself and of my, all of my resources. But as a church and as I set goals for our church, there's one resolution or, or, or one goal that I've resolved to make in 2017 for us, and it's this. I want us to spend more time in prayer as a church. Uh, both individually and corporately, because the reality is this. None of us will look back at 2016 and ever say we prayed enough. Is there anybody that would be like, hey, you know what, 2016, I, I, I pretty much meet the, the peak of what I want to accomplish prayer-wise. Like, I, I don't want to pray any more than that. Any more than that, then I'm too holy. Nobody wants that. Would anybody, would anybody make that argument and say, 2016 was enough prayer for me. 2017, you know, I, I can take it back a few notches. Nobody would make that. Why? Because God has given us this, this reality that we should all seek to grow more and more, right? We, we all know that whether you're young or old, God is not done with you. If you are retired from work, God isn't giving you a, a get-out-of-church-free card or, or get-out-of-serving-me free card like, like you've done. You're, you're done with everything. No. If anything, every single moment that we have where oxygen is filling our lungs, God is saying, I want you to grow. I want you to accomplish the, the tasks that I set out for you. So, so each and every one of us, we all have room to grow. And if you feel like you don't, Paul says, hey, be careful because the enemy is, is close behind. That's called arrogance. God wants us to be people who grow. So in 2017, we are resolving to pray more, right? If, you're, if you don't believe in resolutions, I just set one for you. You're going to pray more in 2017, right? I'm going to knock on your door. Hey, you praying? No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. But we are going to be spending more time in prayer. Why? Because prayer is powerful. Prayer works. God has given us. Like, it's like if somebody dropped a million dollars on your lap and you're like, ah, no, I don't need this, right? God has dropped access to his presence upon your lap. And he's saying, hey, come on in. And, and we're just like, no, God, it's not for me. No, we are going to press in. 2017, we are going to spend more time in prayer. And we're starting it. Last week, we started by just devoting an entire service to prayer. And we're going to be spending five weeks. Uh, this is starting this week. We're going to spend five weeks in a series called The Perfect Prayer. What if I told you there was a perfect prayer? Right, you're like, Pastor Steve, you're starting to sound like a salesman. Are you going to sham Wallace right now? No, I'm not, okay? But, but what if I said there was a perfect prayer? One of the first questions would be asked is, is are, are there certain words that I say to, to achieve this perfect prayer? 
My answer is no. There aren't certain words that you say, right? Sometimes I feel like we have a, a misconstrued understanding of prayer. We believe that if, if I just have the right words to say, if, if I have the perfect prose and vernacular, that God will hear my prayers more. How do I know this? Because when I first got saved, I attended a church. It was a beautiful church. They received me, welcomed me with open arms. This drugged out you know, high school kid, like they welcomed me, they loved me. But I I remember I'd I'd go to the prayer meetings and I always thought to myself, wow, that person who's speaking in King James Version, they really love Jesus. Their prayers must be more effective than mine because mine are like this, hey God, it's me again. Good to hear it from you. Wait, it's me speaking. Are you there, God? Like my my prayers weren't anything, anything beautiful, but I'd hear prayers and, and this person speaking, thou, Lord, thou art high, right? Like saying all these thous and thuses and thys and all these words that they don't really use in real English, but they're, but they're using them. And I would think to myself, wow, their prayers must be more effective. Do you know God doesn't sit up in heaven upon his throne and is like, wow, do you hear that? Jesus, that guy's using King James Version. He must really love us. Nor does he look to the other guy, you know, to, 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 to Michael or, or, or one of the archangels and like, oh, you hear that guy? He's using the message translation when he's, when he's, when he's talking to us. This uh, poor Jimmy, he doesn't know any better, right? No, it's not about the words that we use. It's about the posture of our heart. And, and we're gonna be talking about the perfect prayer. The perfect prayer isn't a series of words that we can strew together. The perfect prayer is one that aligns itself with the will of God. The perfect prayer is one whose heart is humble before the Lord and aligns itself before the heart. So today, we are going to start the first message of this series. I'm going to say the first, the title of this series is this, Building a Firm Foundation. Building a Firm Foundation. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at the prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 13. Now, really quickly, Jesus, in the context of this passage, Jesus is in, in, in preaching mode, right? So Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7 is what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has thousands that are flocking to him, and he's preaching. He's just finished preaching on the Beatitudes and, and preaching on, 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 you know, blessed are the, blessed are those, blessed are those. Now he's getting to a portion of Scripture where he's talking about prayer. It starts in verse 5, and it'll go all the way to verse 13. It says this. Jesus starts off. It says, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Let's pause there. So Jesus is making two very big statements in just those couple verses. The first one is this. Don't be like the hypocrites who pray in public and want to be seen by others. Nowhere in this passage is Jesus speaking out against the ills of corporate prayer. Okay, let's just make sure we're, we're, we're on the same level there. Jesus isn't saying, hey, whenever your church has corporate prayer meetings, you better not go because you're a hypocrite. No, why, Jesus, if Jesus were to say that, he'd be, it'd be, he'd be hypocritical because what does he tell the apostles to do at, at, at his ascension? 
go and pray corporately at the upper room, right? So, so obviously, Jesus isn't against the body coming together and spending time in prayer. What he's, the argument that he's making here is don't be like the hypocrites who pretend to be spiritual in front of others, but when they go away, they're not spending any time in prayer. Don't be like the hypocrites who stand up and want the attention on them. Why? He says, well, because that's going to be their reward. What's their reward? People are going to look to them and say, wow, that person is spiritual, That's the only reward there is for wanting to put on airs for God. Instead, he says, well, just get alone and, and and, and pray to him secretly, and the God who knows you secretly will reward you in the secret place, right? So, not speaking against corporate prayer there, but he's saying if your private life doesn't match your public life, then there's a problem. That, that's the truth in everything. That is the epitome of good character. What you do in private is who you are. Not who you are in public is who you are. It's who you are in private. If you're praying in private, you're a person of prayer. If you only pray in public, you're not a person of prayer. Jesus is making this argument. He's very serious. He's upping the ante. And then he says this. So now he's talking about the, the posture. But now he's talking, the next verse, he's talking about the heart of prayer. He says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. Literally, the, the pagans were known to be individuals that when they would seek their gods, they would use a mantra. They would say the same phrase over and over and over and over, trying to cave or bend the ear of their gods to listen to them. And, and they just, they totally believed if, if we just beat ourselves up, if we sacrificed, if we fasted, if we did things that were just crazy, then our God would listen to us. He's saying, your God is not like this. Our God, the God of, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and jo, jo, Jacob, they are not like that. He's not like that. That's not our God. You know, there was a, a movie that recently came out, Rogue One, Star Wars War, Rogue One, and I'm not going to give any spoilers out, but if you haven't seen it by now, there's something wrong with you. Just kidding. Some, next time you see Pastor Art, go ahead and ask him if he's seen the movie. The man has named his newest and latest daughter, her middle name is Sky. her last name is Walker, uh, over Star Wars, and he is yet to see Rogue One. Shame. For shame. So next time you see him, be like, hey, Pastor Art, have you seen Rogue One yet? We give him a hard time at staff every single week. Um, he's like, well, we don't blame him. He's got a lot of daughters. I think, he's got, I think Cindy's pregnant with two more, actually. So <laughs> he's not here. So I'm talking behind his back. This is not even right. <laughs> but in, in this film, Rogue One, I'm not going to give anything away. There's this new character that we meet. He's like half half like monk, half like, st- like force uh, priest, if you will, right? It's just, it's just fiction. And uh, he's really cool. He's like my new, my new favorite character in the whole Star Wars universe. Uh, he's actually, if anyone's ever watched Ip Man, uh, you know, the guy who fights like this and just like beats everybody up. He's awesome. Like you just combine two of the greatest things in one movie, the force and kung fu. Like it's just incredible. Now this guy has a mantra that he, he repeats over and over and over. The force is with me or I am with the force, or no, I'm one with the force and the force is with me. I am one with the force and the force is with me. And there's a scene where he just repeats that over and over and over and it gives them this power. Listen, our prayer lives aren't like that. If you repeat the same phrase over and over and over and over and over and over, God is not gonna listen to you more than he did if you just said it once, right? He's saying, you don't have to be like the pagans. Our God is not a God who you have to fight for his attention. He wants to give you his attention because he wants to give you his glory. He wants to give you himself. So don't just keep on babbling over and over and over the same phrase, 
right? If, if it's for you, that's one thing. But if you're trying to gain God's attention, it's, it's just not how it works. He says, because your father already knows what you need before you ask him. Is he saying, then don't ask him? No, he's saying ask him, but recognize you are entering into a relationship. He hears you. He wants to be, he wants you to be, he wants to be heard by you, right? But then he says, this then is how you should pray. Now, the next verses that we're about to read we see them twice in all of the Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are two times that we see the Lord, what is called the Lord's Prayer. We see it here in Matthew chapter 6, and we also see it in Luke chapter 11. Now, there are some small differences between both those portions, but the, the portion in Luke is a disciple coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? You know, we, we see John the Baptist and his disciples, and John has taught his disciples how to pray. Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? And he continues what we're about to read here. And he says, this then is how you should pray. So we see the context for this is Jesus giving us the keys to the perfect prayer, to the vehicle of perfect prayer. Let's read this together. Verse nine, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We have to ask ourselves, in this portion of scripture, is Jesus giving us a formula or a model? I grew up in the Catholic Church, and the way they translated this, this portion of Scripture is that it, it, it's, it's a formula. You just learn the words. They, they, they translate it as, this is literally what you should say. Not how you should pray, but, but what you should pray. So, so there I was in second grade, right before I, I did my, my uh, act of confession, before I went through that whole process, learning these prayers, right? Uh, I learned, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, world without end. Amen. I learned it. I knew it. It's still, it's still inscribed in my mind. I can say it over and over and over. I knew the Hail Marys. I knew the Nicene Creed. I knew the Apostles' Creed. I knew all of these prayers. But my prayer life was nothing. It was a ritualistic, demonstrative thing that I just walked through, and it, it, it did nothing in here. So I would suggest that what Jesus is doing here is not giving us a formula saying this then is what you should pray. This then, like learn these words and say these words. He's saying this then is how you should pray. He's giving us a pattern for prayer. So we don't have to quote this passage word for word. It's helpful if you do. Like, you know, if, if you look at the early church, they had this thing known as the Didache, and, and, and they would suggest that everybody uh, recite this three times a day, and, and it was something that the early church did. But what's most important is not getting these words right, but getting the pattern right. So to answer our question, is there a perfect prayer? I would say any prayer that Jesus told us to follow, any prayer that Jesus said, hey, this is a good pattern for you, I would say that's the perfect prayer. Wouldn't you? 
the one that Jesus himself, when the disciples went to him, said, how do we pray? If Jesus gives it to them and says, this is what it is, I'd say, yeah, I want my prayers to model this same exact prayer. So we're gonna look at this prayer for the next five weeks and we're gonna break down week by week what the perfect prayer looks like. Something that you can tangibly take into your personal prayer life and apply these principles that we see in these five verses, in these five lines, and apply them to our life. Now, some people believe and, and translate that this is just an end times prayer, and, and there's, different, there's different arguments for that, but, but we truly believe this is Jesus laying a foundation for what our prayers should look like. How many of you believe, now I said earlier that the, the title of this sermon is Building a Firm Foundation. How many of you, how many of you understand the importance of a firm foundation? The, the same is true in ev- almost every area of life. Uh, right now, Katie and I are raising a toddler, and we are understanding the importance of a firm foundation. Uh, just yesterday, we had one of the most embarrassing, if, I hope it's okay I tell this, one of the most embarrassing uh, days of our life. August, like, is, he, he's a toddler, and he, and he like, smiles when he does things wrong. Like, if you don't believe in, in this, in, we're born with this inclination towards sin, you haven't met my son yet. Like, like it's, it's just a reality. We are, right? We're, we're fallen. We need grace. And my, my son, like, he's so cute. And, and I know if, like, oh, he's just so cute. But he's got this inclination, this disposition towards sin. Like, like he knows no. He understands the word no. Now, like, he, he even says the word no. He knows it. Like, he even, like, oh, he's my son. Like, he does this thing now. When he says no, he dances. He's like, no, 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 no. Like, he just dances. And where did he learn that? Like, who taught you to be so evil, August? Like, not me. You're a pastor's kid, right? We read the Bible at home. Come on, August. But he, he's starting to say no, and he's starting to misbehave and be mischievous. And, and yesterday, he was poking, uh, poking a little boy in the nursery until he'd like get fussy and then he'd run away the the nursery work would be like august don't do that and he just like runs away like this oh my goodness but we are in this phase of life my wife and i where we're starting to see hey unless we deal with this issue unless we make sure we're building a solid foundation his character as he grows is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse now, some Christians, unfortunately, have translated uh, grace to, be, to mean no discipline. No, listen, if, if you believe that grace means you don't discipline your kids, you don't understand grace. Like, I have to develop this child and, and train him. I have to build a firm foundation. It's true in child rearing, like we talked. It's also true in education. Right? We know that there are elemental processes that we have to firmly build upon. Uh, one of those is not like, his, like history. You don't have to build a firm foundation in history. Everything changes, right? You can go from one generation to the other and you, you can pass and this and that. But you know what is a, a, a subject that is foundational? Math. If you don't understand adding and subtraction, multiplication and, and, and division, you are going to struggle as you get older in life. Man, I was so good at, at all of those things. And then I had a high school teacher uh, my freshman year who was my soccer coach. You may have heard this before. I may have told you this story. But he, he was my soccer coach, and he didn't let me, like, he's like, hey, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Score a goal, I'll give you an A. Like, that, that was his mentality. I went to an all-boys Catholic school, so they didn't really care about anything in high school. Uh, but, but I remember not needing to learn anything in Algebra 1. I was in honors classes. Guess what happened my sophomore year when my soccer coach wasn't my teacher anymore, and I had this real, like, math teacher, Algebra 2 honors. I didn't know anything. 
And that's what followed me the rest of my life. That's why I went into ministry, right? Because <laughs> I'm like, Lord, I don't want to do any math. I just, I just want to preach, right? <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. You, you need to learn how to do math, okay? Public, public service announcement. <laughs> learn math. But it's foundational. The same is true of our relationship with Jesus. There are building blocks. Like, like you need to get past the elementary teachings. You need to grow in your faith with Christ. Unfortunately, the church is becoming the only institution on this planet where you can be attending for 20, 30 years and, and nobody puts pressure on you to grow. That's, that's not the way it should be. You need to build. So we're starting at the basics. We are talking about building a firm foundation in our prayer life. And we see it in this verse. And that Matthew chapter 6. I, want, I have a picture I want to show you. Uh, there's this picture that I have. It's, it's the Leaning Tower of Pisa. They started building it in A.D. 1173. And, and it, it's in, it's in the, it was the Republic of Pisa. Now it's in this, in this town of Tuscany, right? Central Italy. And uh, they, they, they built the first phase, the first floor in 1173. Five years later, they, they, they built the second floor. And by the time in 1178, by the time they started building, it started leaning over to the side. They started getting nervous about this, so they're like, hey, let, let's not build anymore. So they took about 100 years off. They, like, literally, they, it took them 200 years to build that thing, uh, but, but literally, they took 100 years off, and then eventually, they're like, okay, let's keep building. Maybe we'll figure something out. Maybe it'll, it'll even out itself. Then they started building and building. They added a, a clock tower to the top, and, and this thing started caving over. In 1964, they're like, okay, we know this is cute. We know everybody likes it. We know it attracts tourists from around the world because, I mean, that's a pretty cool wonder. It's a pretty cool thing to see. It looks like any Ripley's Believe It or Not building, but it's not meant to be Ripley's Believe It or Not. Uh, but, but literally, the, the, the Italians were getting a lot of tourist attractions, but a hospital in the same year, in 1964, in the same town, fell over and killed a lot of people. So they're like, okay, maybe we need to rethink this and figure something out or else something bad's going to happen. So they, they attracted all of the, the architects in, in, in the area, and they brought them together and like, okay, how can we fix this? Well, one guy goes in, and he's like, well, just to let you know, the foundation is what's wrong with this building. You guys built on, well, not you guys, because it's over now. It's 1173. They originally built on 10 feet of concrete. You take that plus the, the humid uh, uh, weather they have there, the soil that is really soft, of course, you're, you're going to need a thicker foundation. They built a poor foundation. In fact, they are saying now, they tried different things to try to fix this, to repair this. They, they, they tried to put eight, 800 tons of weight on the higher side to try to level it back to bring it back to some sort of level to, to, to bring the weight. They've taken the bells off the top. They, they even tried to tie, to chassis it to uh, something else 100 feet away so it wouldn't fall. They cleared the area. There used to be homes and towns uh, or a home in a town right in that little vicinity in the way it's leaning, but they, they moved all those people out of the way. They, they eventually said, okay, we need to dig in and fix the foundation. They went in and they took over, I think it was like, um, I have it right here. They took over 1,342 cubic feet of soil from underneath the raised end and it fixed it just 17 inches. And they said, well, that work in and of itself is good to keep it standing for another 100 years. So if you plan on visiting the Leaning Tower of Pisa, make sure you go within the next 100 years or else they may just come tumbling down on top of you. 
But this is a perfect example of what happens when we don't build a firm foundation. You spent thousands of years afterwards, a long amount of time, repairing the effects of building upon a poor foundation. The same is true of our prayer life. If you don't focus on a firm foundation, you're going to be building something that is going to come toppling over. Now, am I in any way implying or suggesting that God doesn't want your prayer? Or if it's not perfect, he doesn't want it? No. But I'm saying your prayers can be much more effective. Your prayers can be much more powerful if you learn to build them on a solid foundation. Amen? So, let's read that first verse, Matthew 6, verse 9. It says this. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I'm convinced that there are three slabs upon our, uh, upon our foundation in just this one verse. It's our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're gonna look at those three phrases, those three foundations on, upon which we should build. The first one is our Father. This, this phrase that Jesus gives us answers the question, who are you praying to? Our Father, it reminds us who we are praying to. Our Father isn't said to grab God's attention. It's grabbed to fixate ours. When you start off your prayer and you say, Oh, Father, oh, God, you're not saying that so that God is, as he's up in heaven, like, you know, cooking or something, he's like, Oh, you're calling me? Like, you're not saying it to grab God's attention, right? We know that God, that, that's, not, that's not a good theology to think that we have to get God's attention. When we say our Father, we are saying it to fixate ours to remind ourselves who we are praying to. But that title that Jesus gives us, this Our Father, uh, it's, it's, it's twofold purposes. The first one is this. It's reserved for an authority figure. He is a father and he's worthy to be uh, revered. But it's also reserved for a loving parent. It, it has twofold purposes. You see, when Jesus is bringing up this phrase, Our Father, when he's opening it up, uh, this was kind of revolutionary to the people that he was speaking to because they understood that God was a father in two ways. They understood that God was a father through DNA purposes, like, like they were all created in his image and in his likeness, so therefore God is their father through creation, right? We see this in Deuteronomy 32 verse 6. It says, is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, whom, who, who made you and formed you? So, so they understood God through a father in the sense of creation. Yeah, God, God's our father. He created us. So they, they understood that. They understood that if, you know, if, if they went on a Maury Povich show and, and they took a DNA test, like God would be their father, right? Some of you are like, who's Maury Povich? Don't worry about it. He's, he's a theologian somewhere, okay? So they understood that God is our father through creation. The second way they understood that God is their father is, is through lineage. That, that God took a a hodgepodge group of people, and he became their father, the father of Israel, right? He took Abraham, who was the father of all of Israel, and he said, and they understood that God is their father through lineage. But what they didn't understand is that Jesus was making a revolutionary statement and saying, God wants to be your father the same way I view him. The same, in, in the same intimacy that I speak to my father, that's how God wants you to know him. And that's how God wants to be known by you. 
It's something revolutionary. They, they understood that at one point, humanity was going to have that in the garden, right? Adam was, was re- walked with God. They were very close. But through the cause of sin, they emancipated themselves from God. Do you know that word emancipated? You know, there's emancipatory laws where a, a, a minor can, can take their parents to court and say, I want nothing to do with them. And, and there's a lot of things to, to get to that level. But, but there is a way to emancipate yourself from your legal parents. We did that from God through sin. We said, God, we no longer want to be under your covering. We, don't, we no longer want to be under your security. We want to emancipate ourselves and live a life of sin. Every single one of us who have committed an infraction against God, who've sinned, have said, God, we want nothing to do with you. So Jesus, when he was bringing up this our father, he wasn't just saying, okay, look, view him as a creator. Okay, view him as one who is, who, whose lineage you derive from. He was saying, I want you to view God as someone who is intimate with you. Someone who is near and dear with you. He uses this word regarding his God or regarding his father in, in the gospel of Mark when he's praying it in, in chapter 12. He uses this word Abba, A-B-B-A. You're like, who's Abba? Are we talking about dancing queen, right? No, we're not talking about dancing queen, okay? Abba, not the band, Abba, Abba, father. Abba was this word in Aramaic that literally translated to daddy, daddy. And here we have Jesus who's, who's using this word, referring to God, and a lot of the Jews that turn their necks because they're like, he ain't your daddy. He is the God of the universe. He's sovereign. He's mighty. He's holy. He's righteous. He's just, right? We don't talk to him that way. But Jesus is saying, listen, I believe that my father is righteous, is holy, is just, is, is sovereign, is all of those things, but he is also my daddy, He is also one that loves me and cares for me and and one who's given me the privilege to call him by that name. Did you know God's desire is for you to enter into prayer with that same level of intimacy? In fact, if you've been serving Christ, if you've you've rendered your life over to him, if, if you've admitted your sins and if you've said, Jesus created me a new heart, you, if you don't pray with that level of understanding and intimacy, you are not completely entering into what was purchased for you through Jesus Christ on the cross. You are missing out on something huge, revolutionary. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, you remember how we were talking about emancipation? Well, the only thing that can overturn emancipation is adoption. And we see this in Romans 8, verse 15. It says this, the spirit you received, literally talking upon salvation, the moment you gave your life to Jesus, the moment you said, Jesus, come and save me, the moment you made that declaration, it says the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Because how many of you know before Jesus, you were living in fear? What's going to happen? When I die, what's going to happen here? What's going to happen this? You were living, you were completely shackled and bound to fear. You know who your daddy was before Jesus? Fear, frustration, struggle. He says, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. You have been adopted You once were emancipated because of the sin in your life and you are now adopted through Jesus Christ. It says this, that spirit, by him we cry, Abba, Father. 
The same words Jesus used when he was praying in the garden, the same words that he used in John 17 and Mark chapter 12, whenever Jesus would get alone, he would refer to God as his intimate father. There's only one person on this planet who can call me Dada. That's my son, August. If anybody else did it, it'd be weird. And actually, just an FYI, we are having a boy, in case we didn't say that publicly. Um, Katie, yeah, we know what Katie's having. It's a boy. So all you that said it was a girl? Nope, it's a boy. <clears throat> yes. So there's going to be two people walking around this place that can call me Dada, that I've, I've extended that level of intimacy towards, and, and I want to be called Dada. Like, I, I want them to know that, yes, I'm your daddy, and any, like, I love you and care for you, and anybody else who says this is weird and doesn't have this right or privilege, we have the right or, and privilege of calling our father daddy. That level of intimacy, God, I know you want me near. I know you're not keeping me at an arm's length. I know you're not a deadbeat dad who's just off in a far-off land and who's distant. You are near and dear. You want me here. Friend, God, in your prayer life, God, if there's anything that you start changing in your prayer life is is reminding yourself this, God wants me here. God wants to hear from me. God has purchased and made a a way for me to enter in. And if I don't, I am like, I'm, I'm making contempt the sacrifice of Jesus. So Father, help me enter in and realize that you want me at this level of intimacy. Help me, God. Our usage of the term our father is not about protocol. It's about being reminded of our granted permission and accessible proximity. God is saying, come on in. So once we recognize this first slab of our foundation, we can look to the next. He says, our father in heaven. The first one answers who. The second one answers where. Where is God? The reminder of him in heaven is not like supposed to have us think of God being far off and distant, right? Uh, Americans, they, they took a, a study, the Pew, the Pew Research took a study in 2014. They asked Americans, do you believe in heaven? Uh, 72% of all Americans believe in heaven. It's not just 72% of American Christians. This is people across the board. Every faith, every religion, they had a great case study. Uh, all non-believers, unbelievers, like they had people who don't affiliate with any faith, people who identify with, with uh, Buddhist, Buddhism, Muslims, all, everybody. They asked this question, do you believe in heaven? And they said, 72% of them said yes. They defined heaven on that research, on that study. They said, a place where good people go after life. If you are good, if you are a good person, you will go to heaven. That, that's, what they, that's what they profess and believe. That is the American definition or the, 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 the long, the most... Um, popular definition of heaven. Now, that's not a biblical definition of heaven. That's not what is taught in scripture. Uh, There's a lot more to that, and we've talked about that previously. But they say, it's kind of like the NBC's show called The Good Place, right? Where if you are good, you'll, you'll end up there. That is how in America, heaven is defined. But to a Jew, when they prayed this prayer, our Father in heaven, They didn't see it as a place where good people go. They saw it as the place where God's kingdom is established. They viewed it as the the place where the throne of God resided. In Isaiah 66, verse 1, it says this. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? So, so literally, heaven is the place where God's throne is. And for him to say the earth is his footstool is saying, I have dominion over that place too. I, I sit in heaven and a part of my royal throne, I rest my feet upon the earth. Meaning I have kingship and demand and sovereignty. I rule sovereign over heaven, the kingdom, and I have rule over the earth. So when we pray our Father in heaven, we remind ourselves of where he is. It's not to have us believe that God is like some far off deist, that he's, he's not accessible, that it takes a while for any male to get to him, that he f- seldomly checks his email. When we say in heaven, we are saying, God, we are cognizant of the fact that you reign sovereign over my entire life, that I can trust you to be supreme. I can trust you to be one who is in control of everything in my life. So when I say our Father, God, you want me in your presence. When I say in heaven, I'm reminded, Lord, you are, you are sovereign and, and have dominion over all creation. It's supposed to, to get your heart to a point where you trust God and say, Lord, I am reminded that you are in charge of it all. And lastly, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. What's in a name? So the, to the Jews... Your name was everything. Your name was your identity. That's why when you look at a lot of the names and see the, the meanings of that name, you see a lot of God in that name, right? Like, like Joshua, for example, we taught on him a couple weeks ago. Joshua uh, literally means God saves or, or Yeshua, Yahweh saves. There's, so, so they would name their children in an attempt that their entire life would be uh, would live up to that name. So, so to, to the Jews, a name was very important. That's why they had over 16 names for Yahweh, for God alone, right? El Shaddai and, and all of these different names that they had for him because they said, this is who God is. So when they say, hallowed be your name, they are literally saying, God, everything that encompasses who you are is holy, is holy. Now, I, I've, I've asked myself, why does Jesus say, when you pray, say, hallowed be your name? What, is, what does hallowed mean? Is it like something that we're knocking on and it's empty on the other side? Like, no, hallowed literally means to be made holy or to be holy. So when we're saying, holy is your name, we are literally saying, God, everything that encompasses who you are, the entire essence of your being, All of your attributes, all of your characteristics can be summarized by this one word, holy. Holy. If you've ever studied the attributes of God, you know there's a few of them, right? If you've ever studied the characters of God, there's, you know, he's omnipresent, meaning he's he's everywhere at all times, right? He's he's omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. There's nothing that God cannot do. He's omniscient. He's he's all-knowing. He's omnibenevolent, meaning he's he's all good. God can't even be be even be tempted by any sin. James talks about that. So we know that there is these attributes of God, but there is one attribute that sets God apart from everything and it's his holiness. God is holy, meaning he is, he is set apart from sin. He can never cross over the void of good and evil. He is 100% good, holy, loving, compassionate. That is who God is. He can never do anything evil. He can never do wrong. He can never even be tempted by sin. And when we pray, 
we should recognize the strength, the power, and the holiness of our God. It should bring us a level of humility over us. Notice how Jesus opens up this prayer and nowhere in the foundation of this prayer does it talk about us. It doesn't talk about us at all. It doesn't bring up requests. It starts with the foundation of knowing who you are praying to, where he is, and what he is. Who, what, where. Friend, if you want your prayer life in 2017 to be revolutionized, I urge you, start off in a state of humility that reminds you of who God is, where God is, and what he is. He is holy. In Ezekiel 36, verse 23, and if the band wants to come back up, it open. The, the prophet Ezekiel is, is being used by God and, and God is speaking through him and it says this, I will show how holy my great name is, the name on which you brought shame among the nations. And when I reveal my holiness through you before their very eyes, says the sovereign Lord, then the nations will know that I am the Lord. God, his number one objective is making sure, is ensuring that his name remains intact. God is for his purposes. God is, 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 is on a mission to make sure his name remains intact. Why? Is it because he's arrogant? No, because he wants to display his holiness to the world around him. God is, God is on a mission, friends, and if we can learn in 2017 to align ourselves to what God is doing, to his purposes, we will revolutionize our prayer life. We don't have to look at the powerful prayers that we see in scripture and feel like that's not for us or that'll never be us. You know, in, in, in the book of Acts, in chapter four, there's a moment where both John and Peter are in prison. They had to stand trial before the Sanhedrin, which was the, the judging class of, of Israel at that point in Jerusalem. They had to stand before them because they were, they were doing a lot of things for Jesus. They, were, they went to the temple, they healed a man, and, and he could walk. He was lame for 40 years, and it was an incredible, incredible story. The Sanhedrin were like, hey, listen, you got to stop doing this, and they ended up imprisoning the guys. They said, they, they told Peter and John, stop preaching the name of Jesus. Follow, follow what we're saying. Stop preaching the name of Jesus. And, and, and they turned to the Sanhedrin like, do we obey God or do we obey man? Who do we answer to first? They weren't being rude or, or, you know, brash. They were saying, listen, we have a higher authority that we need to answer to. And it's, it's God. It's Jesus. He's the one who's commanded us to pray, to, to pray the kingdom, right? So, so they're doing that. They ended up getting imprisoned and the apostles are the, the apostles and the other disciples who saw this and witnessed this, they are back home and they begin to pray a beautiful prayer. In fact, it's a prayer that is very, very similar to the one we see Jesus, the model he give, gave them a couple years back. They open up and before they even bring their requests to God, they open up and they say, oh God of the universe, our holy God, our righteous God, our God who, who wants us in his presence. And they're, they're beautiful prayer, right? The perfect prayer, because it's, it's modeled after the one Jesus gave them. At the end of that verse, it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, it says this, after this prayer, the meeting place, the ground on which they were standing was shaken. 
I believe in 2017, God wants us to pray prayers that will shake the ground of fear, of doubt, of insecurity in your life. Completely shaken up. But it starts with a firm foundation. Remembering who God is. He is our Father. He's not this far-off deity. He's not someone, he's not like the Father that maybe some of us, and I know, I know in this place right now, hearts are, are being reminded of the fathers they may have had. I am sorry if you have issues of abandonment that you're dealing with now. I'm sorry if the only reality that you have of a father is someone who was never there or someone who was abusive. But let me tell you this. God promises to be a father to the fatherless. Friend, he promises by the work of Jesus that he loves you and cares for you and has purchased an opportunity to enter into his presence in an intimate fashion. He wants you there. You are his adopted son and daughter. That doesn't mean you're second rate. That means he saw you when you were abandoned you and went for you. You know, I always say that it's, it's beautiful to have a child, but it's even more beautiful to say, I want one. This one specifically. God has adopted you. You aren't the, step, the, the redheaded stepchild. You are his beloved. So when we go into prayer, we say, yes, God. Thank you, Father. You want me in your presence. You want, you want to build this relationship with me. You are the one who, who's, who's laid the ground for me to come into your presence. That should be encouraging. Secondly, Lord, we know you are in heaven. It doesn't mean you're far away. It means you are sovereign. You are on your throne. The, the heaven, you even, even bring that up in your prayer life. Lord, I know that heaven is your throne and the earth is your footstool. You will remain sovereign over all creation. That means my situation, my fear, my insecurity, my doubt, my sin, you can be stronger than that. You are greater than that. You are bigger than that. God, help me have your perspective. And lastly, holy is your name. Father, may I never forget that you are a holy God. You are righteous. You are just. You know what that's going to do to your prayer life? You're not going to get lopsided. You're going to remain on a firm foundation, recognizing that it's about Jesus it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's not about my needs. It's not about what I want, about what I can profit. It's about Jesus.